Hello and welcome to episode 29 of Bottled Up. My name is Ujwal and today I'm your host. Uh, it's been a while since I've been behind the mic, but I'm stoked to bring you a very special guest today, Tarang Chavla. Tarang is a writer, an anti-violence campaigner, a mental health advocate, and he's someone with a very powerful message and a story to share. In 2015, Tarang's sister was unfortunately murdered by... Her partner and since then Tarang began his journey of being an advocate. Now I must admit this podcast definitely goes into some very very intense themes including suicidality and the experiences of losing a loved one so please do keep that in mind before listening to this episode. Um, yeah but in saying that I absolutely love this chat and I gained a lot of wisdom from Tarang particularly as he speaks very strongly about his experiences in the South Asian community so Without further ado, it's Tarang. Um, we'll get we'll get into it. Yeah, cool. Tarang, like I know it's been a while. We've been trying to get you on, and I'm like stoked to have you on the podcast today. Like, uh, on behalf of Mank and Sunny, like we've been following your Instagram for a while, and we see all your posts and the messages you share. And we obviously had Rishi on, who told told us a bit about yourself. But yeah, really excited to to have you on today. But you know, we always start by just asking, like, how are you doing today? Like, difficult times you know we're at that point in lockdown where everyone's a bit fed up of it how are you how are you feeling how are you going i'm good we i mean we, we were just chatting before like it's a daylight saving now and uh yeah it's i think having the longer days is going to make a difference uh the melbourne weather is as well it turned it on earlier today and that was yeah. fantastic <laughs> and when we were before we started recording and now it's raining outside so it's a bit gloomy but uh yeah i'm pretty good today i'm in a, a good mood i went for a really long walk i uh yeah i was out for probably my allocated two hours i think i used up all of that time yeah. outdoors and uh yeah i think lockdown's hard right it's uh yeah whether even if you've got like job stability and stuff it's still not a natural way of living i think so it's not normal for us at all because we you know we're social creatures and that's a that's a big part of like you know our life like we don't even realize that we almost take it for granted i remember like last year uh, after one of the big lockdowns, I went out with a few friends for dinner and we were like, we are never taking this sort of thing for granted ever again. And like now it's again, we can't really sit down and have a meal. Um, but like hopefully there is some level of certainty, a bit more than what there has been in the last few weeks. Uh, there was an announcement yesterday about international travel. So, you know, there is hope um, and that's that's kind of what I'm holding on to. Um, but yeah, I wanted to, um, in terms of your story, take it back right to the beginning. And I know there's so many different angles we can go with this, but um, I couldn't help but notice like we're from very similar backgrounds um, from yep. like Southeast Asia. Um, so yeah, tell, take me back to the beginning, you know, the days in Delhi. I know you're very, you have a strong, like sort of strong cultural roots um, and that's a big part of who you are. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I have obviously strong cultural roots like yourself and like so many people from, you know, broader South Asian continent. But I didn't spend a lot of time living there. I grew up primarily in Melbourne. I, I was born um, just an hour outside of Delhi and uh, where dad's family is from, Ghaziabad. And I was yeah. born there and moved to Australia when I was 18 months of age. And our first port of call was uh, Port Lincoln. And uh, that's like a harbourside, seaside town in uh, in South Australia. And it's, I mean, the population small. It was smaller then. It's tiny now. And I think for mum coming, growing up in like the hustle and bustle of New Delhi, she was like, this is terrible. Like, yeah. I, this is this is not the place where we're going to start a family. Like, this is too different. Um, and so Melbourne, I mean, it's busier now, but in the late 80s, early 90s, it was, you know, quieter, 
wetter city like it rained all the time it was yeah it was still had a slower pace of life life than what it does now so we we moved when i was an infant from india and then and then grew up uh in uh in sort of different living in different flats in melbourne before my parents bought their first house out in the like outer southeastern yeah. suburbs and uh yeah man like i i think more recently in the last say like 10 or 15 years of my life have sort of gone and and spent more time in India. I don't know if you had this experience, but like for me, particularly when I was younger, every visit to visit family in India was spent watching cable television and sitting <laughs> under the air conditioner and eating ice cream. Like the yeah. moment that you were like, oh, can we go on the train? They were like, it's not safe. Can we go out at night? It's not safe. Can we do yeah. anything other than sit here and watch Sky Sports? It's not safe. So for, yeah. for me, it was like this kind of uh, childhood experiences in India were few and far between like I spent time there visiting family but we didn't do anything of substance and then when I, I remember when I was in university I went for a couple of months and I spent some time in India and, and rode the trains and everything I did I did the experience that a lot of um you know Anglo Western backpackers get yeah right where yeah. they actually see the quote-unquote real India yeah and oh like I understand why people go there and just a part of them they leave a part of themselves there and they take something uh, something intangible with them, you know, that they keep for life. There's, there's, there's a certain hypnotism to the continent and the subcontinent. They're just the, the way that people interact with one another, the vibrancy, the color, the food, the sights, the smells, there's purely no other place like it. And I think part of that is what makes me really proud to be from the subcontinent, right? That there's yeah. just so much... Uh, depth of human experience and knowledge and a vast knowledge. And I think for me in the last kind of decade or so, it's learning about that. It's relearning the history of India, you know, yeah. uh, in, in factual and accurate terms, which goes back just millennia. Yeah. So I 100%. think, I think we're really lucky, man. And that's, yeah. I mean, that, that, that's taking it right back to the start and then um, yeah. Grew up in, in and around Melbourne after that. Yeah, that sounds very similar to me. I was born in Delhi as well, came to Melbourne and it's a challenging time because like even parents are often not sure. They don't have the answers of why we're here. I remember I I would always like like talk to parents like, what are we doing here? Because I, I was quite attached to my like my uncle and my mom's sister. There was the memories I had when I was two years old and I moved here. Um, and it took a lot of time for our family to kind of accept, hey, we're going to stay here now because this is what we think is the right thing to do. Um was there a moment in your family where you realized that, you know, Australia is our home or Melbourne's our home and this is where we're going to be? Um, yeah, well, we, we had that experience when my sister Nikita was born. I think that was what settled it for my, um, my parents. That was, uh, that was the thing that, uh, that really, mm. uh, really, I think cemented it for my parents that, right. that this is home now and we're, we're never um, we're never going we're never going to go back to India like to live um, yeah yeah uh, and then yeah it basically it, it basically was like this this kind of seismic shift right like I think and my parents have and I've never spoken about it but I think that we had this experience right where like because I, I was quite sick, I had like asthma and other issues that, you know, as an infant I was living with. And the culture shock for my parents was like so profound that they'd left everything 
everything that they knew, you know, they're in their mid 20s. And I think that's a common experience for so many migrant parents, right? Like they've mm. got, they've either come here on their own, or they've got newborns, right? And they're like, or children, and they're trying to figure out everything. And I just, it's probably only more recently in life that I've actually understood and grasped how big a deal that is. Do you know what I mean? Like, it wasn't like yeah. something that back, you know, when I was a teenager, my dad used to speak in his like Indian accent. I think, oh, you know, it's fucking ridiculous. Like, yeah. whatever. And now I'm like, man, like this guy came to Australia when he was like 30, approaching 30 uh, or just after 30. I think he's 30. What would he have been? Like 32. My dad would have been yeah, 32 wow. when he moved to Australia. Right. I'm 34 now. And so like, I remember when I turned 32 and I was like, shit. So dad was my age when he got up, left the country that he grew up in. And this is like, you know, like pre-internet days, right? Where you didn't really know what the other side of the world was like, you know, yeah. and to get on a plane and to just uh, to bail and, and, you know, go with your child and your, uh, your new wife, new bride. And so it, it, yeah, I think there was a lot of uh, angst probably for my parents. Like, have we made the right decision? You know, like dad having to get a job, uh, coal stacking shelves despite having a master's in engineering you know and there's nothing wrong with stacking um it's not it's not about like the job that you do but it's more like about i like uh, this isn't what i want to do like i want to do something else how can i mm. actually contribute and use my skills and my knowledge and my education but none of that counting for anything here right and then the places that do count it for something treating my dad like you know a completely outsider because to them he was and so i think I think it was when Nikki was born in 1991 uh, at um, St. Vincent's Hospital in Fitzroy. I think that was the moment at which it was like, yeah, this is home, you know? And shortly after mm. uh, my parents bought their first family home that we lived in, grew up in for seven or eight years. And I think, uh, I think it was that, that, you know, led to them meeting other people from the Indian community and forming yeah. friendships and connections. And I think it was that shared human experience. Yeah. Uh, so like for me, a lot of family friends, have grown up like cousins. I don't know if you've had this experience. Exact like, same thing, yeah. Yeah, like I'll like people, you know, I'll have white Australian friends talk to me about how they're going to their cousin's house. And it's like, I'm closer to some of my family friends than probably my cousins just because yeah. we didn't get to see our cousins. You know, like mm. my parents' first trip back to India after moving was uh, three years after uh, we moved and then five years after that. You know, and yeah. that was a period during which, um, during which like, you know, I grew up from being like three or four years of age to being like eight or nine, you know? So like, I didn't see my grandparents as much. I didn't see my cousins as much. And you didn't form as close connections, you know, we're close to now, but back then it was like, you just make friends and family with the people around you. Yeah. No, I, I, I can hundred percent relate because when we came, when we came here and right at the beginning, whenever you saw someone with a sim similar background essentially some another indian person from north india in in my case my mother or even my, my my parents i guess would really appreciate that and they would really like try to invest in that social connection and even till this day like now it's been i think like 22 23 years since we've been here we're still in touch with the same people and those were the people that helped us in the most difficult times in our lives even up till now Mm. So like we had some really difficult family situations maybe two years ago and yep. the people that helped us out the most were the people we met like in the first few months when we came to, to, to Australia. And what I take from that is like, 
in the most difficult times of your life, the people who help you, the social connections you make, that is what's going to give you hope. That's what's going to get you through um, the, the challenging times. And yeah, I really like respect that, that, that trait, which I think a lot of uh, parents from who have gone through similar things, such as ours from moving countries go through. Um, but yeah, so you mentioned that, that there was one defining moment essentially when Nikki was, was born and that kind of, you know, put, put things with a bit more clarity, like this is our home and this is where we're going to, you know, live our life. Um, I wanted to dive a bit deeper into, you know, the story of Nikki. And I guess when it comes to this, you mentioned before, like Nikki's story is about, it's about hope, creativity. It's about the values she shared with everyone. And, you know, whether it be dancing or passion, what are, what are the fondest memories you have like growing up with her? Yeah. What a great question. I, I particularly like that because, um, you know, as, as you know, and, and others uh, may know that Nikki was murdered when she was 23. Yeah. Um, and often, you know, the media will report like, you know, in terms of stories of, of women who have been harmed by violence, mm. that the story of them is often the uh, their demise or the end of their life. And actually mm. the story is often the, li- the life that they led and how they lived it and how they overcame adversity and all of those mm. sorts of things, right? And so... Yeah. For me, um, Nikki's life is one of, of creativity and trying to contribute in some way to the world and to society. Um, and, and my fondest memories of growing up, are, you know, there's nothing that stands out as being like, you know, th- these are the, the key moments. It's often the little things, right? It's mm. the it's the building intimacy over time, right? Like, yeah. I mean, I've got examples of like how she, you know, how we'd poke fun at each other and things like that. But at the end of the day, it's really about that closeness of connection that you have with your siblings, right? The fact that not only do you often share DNA if you're biological siblings, but you also have like that, um, you also have that kind of um, brother and sister connection where you just grow up and you, you look after each other and you look out for each other. And I think for Nikki and I in particular, because there was four years age gap between us, it was enough that like we led separate lives, but close enough that we were still, you know, uh, close. Uh, we didn't have yeah. that. We didn't have that issue of like, uh, you know, my mum, for instance, the gap between her and her siblings is, you know, double that, like eight years, 10 years. So it's like you kind of you're at different life stages, you know, particularly when one's off at like uh, university, the other one might still be in primary school. Right. So there's like a, there's a real disconnect there. Whereas for us, four years was enough that when I was at university, she was still at university. When I was in high school, she was in high school. Like we kind of, you know, particularly like in primary school, right. Like we went to the same primary school. So, uh, you know, we'd get school photos together. We, we kind of had that shared experience. Like I'd know if she was being bullied on the playground or something that I could look out for her, that kind of thing. And you kind of, over that you develop closeness and you you obviously have the relationship with your siblings where you go through phases where you can't stand each other. You say the worst things about each other, yeah, you get yeah. into fights, you bicker and your parents are constantly like at their own wits end trying to deal with your own um, conflicts with one another. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, Nikki uh, was alive for 23 years and I feel tremendously grateful to have had a sister that, you know, she gave the amount of love that she put out you know, mm. and that she added to my life is more than some people get in many lifetimes. So I think, right. uh, I think I count myself pretty lucky, you know, that, that I had a sister like her. Yeah. Well, that, that was beautifully said. And I think that's, that's a great way to describe like the essence of like what she really um, reflects. And like, I've obviously listened and read about, you know, um, your, your take on this before. And one thing that I really, really liked was like so many people, she, she, 
did a, a, a typical degree that, you know, people from my background may do, um, yep. accounting, right? Yeah, and, she started with accounting, yeah. Yeah, and she ended up, you know, transitioning to what she really was passionate about, um, yeah. which I can only imagine would be so challenging yeah. and you have to be so brave to do yeah. that. And I think one of the things, right, like, um, I mean, for listeners that, that aren't aware, like Nikki started uh, her degree after she finished high school in accounting, a Bachelor of Accounting. And, uh, and then after one year, quite sort of despondent with the choice to even do that in the first place, uh, submitted a portfolio to Monash University and then transitioned to do a uh, Bachelor of Performing Arts, right? Yeah. And it reminds me of... Uh, I'm not sure if you've seen that speech that Jim Carrey, the comedian, gave uh, where he talks about his father, right? And it's like, right. I can't remember which university, but it's a commencement speech. And he's speaking about yeah. his father and he's, he's saying that, like, people know me, Jim Carrey, as being a funny guy, right? Like, yeah. that's if, if you say Jim Carrey to someone, they'll go, oh, yeah, the comedian, funny guy, the mask, whatever. They'll name his films or they'll do one of his lines or something. Yeah. And uh, he's, I mean, he's widely considered one of the best comedians of all time right and mm. with good reason um and so he was talking about how people know him for that and then he said but would you believe that my dad is funnier than i will ever be right he's hard to tell people that my dad was one of the funniest men to have ever lived right and he right. goes but my dad chose not to do a career in comedy right mm. um and he had the option not to right do that he had the option to pursue a career in comedy but what he did was he went and became an accountant or a you know a banker or something like that and he said and then my dad lost his job and we were like 12 years old i was like 12 years old and uh all of a sudden homeless and uh and what ended up happening was um we we you know were living hand to mouth for several years and he goes yeah my dad failed at doing something that he hated, right? He didn't enjoy his job, right? And he goes, I learned that if you can fail at doing something that you hate, you may as well fail at doing something that you love because at least you got to do something that you love. And I think for me, that's like the lesson that Nikki lived with, right? That like, yeah. you know, and she didn't fail at doing what she loved. Her life was taken from her so she didn't get to keep doing it. But the mm. lesson for me is it still remains. So like try to do what you love. You know, it might not become like, it might not become like your um your job or something. It may always be a passion project, right? But I think like yeah. in terms of one's mental health, you know, or mm. anything, their, their spiritual health, right? Their emotional well-being, mm. try to do something that you love. You know, yeah. like if you, if you love going out for bike rides, right? Do that when you can. Yeah. You know, we've all got like, we've all got different competing priorities, whether you've got, you know, a young family or you don't, whether you've got um, crazy work hours, right? Try to do something that you love uh, in and amongst yeah. that. And I think for me, that was the lesson that she, she did something that in South Asian communities, I think is becoming more common, but when she did it, it was a little rarer. Um, yeah. And I'd like to see more of, more of people from our communities really breaking down those barriers and those stigmas right because yeah. i often think like how many disenfranchised consultants could have been tremendous painters you know how many <laughs> yeah like how many how many people that work for one of the big four could have uh been amazing musicians yeah right um and it's funny because it's like we we sort of um society typecasts us 
But yeah. sometimes we internalize that and typecast ourselves, right? That we've got to fulfill a role, that we've got to be doing a respectable job and stuff. And it's like, do we? Like, why, mm. why don't we do something that we're actually passionate about, right? Why don't we actually do something that we genuinely care about? Yeah. No, like what you've just said, it, it just, it flows through our mind. It's something I think about every single day. And, and, I, and you say the big four, it's funny because I'm currently working at one of the big four and so are the other two founders. And this is stuff yeah. that we literally grapple over every day. And yeah. what, what I really like, like listening to, um, to, to what Nikki, Nikki did is that it's someone from a very similar background to, to us in the South Asian community. And you can kind of, it, it inspires you, I guess, because like I can look at someone someone down the road who I know has, Hey, is pursuing creative arts, but I can make up almost like an excuse in my head. Hey, they grew up with different values, different pressures, their parents would have said different things. But then when I see other people in the South Asian community, um, whoever it be, even Rishi to an extent, for example, Mm. um, when I heard his story, that was like, he's made his own path and he's done something creative in his own space. Like those sort of things inspire me to at least consider and, it's also not just, hey, quit your job and do something else. Even trying or doing something yeah. on the side, that's important. Yeah. And that's the thing, right? That it's not, it's that like, it's not like if you work at the big four or wherever it may be, yeah. you know, if you choose a career in medicine, which is, and again, a stereotype that you're then, uh, you're, you know, living up to stereotype or you're not doing what you're passionate about. It's not that at all, right? No. In fact, yeah. you may be really passionate about that. Like all you may want to do is become, uh, you know, a, an accountant, right? Mm. I don't, but you know, others, and I wouldn't be good at it. Right. Like, yeah. it's not like that's the simple fact. Uh, yeah. But the thing about it is that like, do it consciously, right. Make the yeah. choice, like be aware of what choice you're making. And sometimes life dictates that you can't make other choices. Right. Particularly, you know, if we think of our parents' generation, right. My dad didn't have a choice to go and decide to do other things because he had to make sure that, you know, there was food on the table. He had, he had to make other sacrifices, right? And I think that continues in our generation. Mm. But where we've got the opportunity to, to take that little bit of progress to support us to do things that, you know, turn the dial a little bit further in yeah. the direction of freedom of, of expression and creativity. And creativity not in the, in the scope that, you know, you need to be involved with words or art or sculpture. It's not like that. It's more like creativity in the way that you live, right? Like creativity mm. in some way to, uh, to, to live a life that feels full and whole, you know, like whether, whether that means that you volunteer at a, at a food truck once a week, right? Mm. But you work in a government job, whether it's that, whatever it may be in some way, shape or form, are you doing something that's giving back? You know, and it need not be mm. your job. You need not go work for a not-for-profit charity and mm. spend your, your waking hours immersed by cause. But is there something, you know, for me, it's like that thing that like, if you drop dead tomorrow, how, what's been your net output in the world? You know, like yeah. if all you did was make money and buy a nice house and have a nice car, nothing wrong with that. But if that's all that you did, you know, what, what was the point? You know, like, yeah. did you make someone's or something's life better as a consequence of being here? Mm. Then you've won life as far as I'm concerned. And if you can do that without compromising your own mental health in the process, then I guess that, that's the that's the goal. Yeah, 100%. It's, I think it's like a balancing out. Like I have, for me, it's been a challenge to like, when I look at these noble pursuits, lawyers, doctors, engineers, then I look at, you know, the other side, which is like art, creativity, there's a balance between the two. And it's like respecting both sorts of professions and realizing how can I sculpt my life in the best possible way, where I'm looking at my well being in a holistic way. 
Um, but yeah, like I guess we could talk about this all day. Like I, I absolutely love this topic and it's something I think about and so many of my friends think about because we're all around 23 to 25 starting work and it is a very, it's, it's a very uh, challenging time and a very formative time. But I want to take it back to Nikki and uh, I guess obviously transition to, you know, 2015 and in the time before that in January and what were things like, you know, right before um, her passing? I mean, Nikki's life before um, was twofold, right? It was on the one hand, it was like any woman living through quite serious abuse. It was, um, it was horrible, you know, like mm. we didn't as a family and no, none of her friends had a full, um, a full uh, kind of guide of just how horrible it was for her but one of the things about men's violence against women when when mm. homicide occurs is that there is a perception uh, and unfortunately it lingers across all areas of society whether it's lay people or the judiciary or law enforcement that men just snap you know it's like a spur of the moment decision mm. but actually homicide is often a you know, the final straw of a series of coercive behaviors and control and emotional and psychological and other forms of abuse. So Nikki experienced yeah. a lot of hardship, unfortunately, like, you know, it wasn't always something that she showed um, physically. Um, certainly at times there were physical manifestations of it, you know, bruises, cuts, those kinds of things. But the, the reality is that women who experience men's violence really, really go through, difficult difficult experiences and their and their kind of resilience and their strength is something that i think that most people don't fully grasp right like what they kind of endure and what they live with um, and i think that's one of the reasons that in my advocacy work i'm very uh I'm very strong advocate for lived experience as a form of expertise you know like if you think about you know if you look at people's cvs right and there's like might be like a three-year gap and it's like well what did you do and in some cases women survived and left an abusive relationship during those three years and if they ran you through the list of things that they did you know in order to keep themselves safe in order to provide for their children while trying to live while someone had a plan of escalating violence you know an abuse that was leading to physical violence it's like that's a lot harder than just showing up to your job and doing work every day, right? Like that that in itself is a form of categorical expertise. We can learn a lot from their resilience and from their strength and their um, experiences. So I think, you know, valuing that is, is key. Um, but Nikki lived through a, a lot of hardship, um, but you wouldn't know it because she was one of those kind souls who always had time for everyone, right? So that period yeah. before was... Um, really happy, you know, for our family. Like I was in my mid twenties and there was yep. just, yeah, it was like, we were, we were all doing really well as a family. You know, my parents were very kind of in a really good space as well. And I think um, Nikki's murder is what turned that all around. And I think that yep. moment in January, 2015, when she did die is um, yeah. Something that just rocked our world completely. Yeah. Uh, like it's hard to, I've, I've heard the story a few times now and like, you still can't really, like even fathom, like, you know, I, I know you were, were you in your apartment at the time and you had no idea until like the next, like the morning? Yeah. So she was murdered overnight and um, yeah, my parents were the first ones informed. And then they told me that morning, you know, a few hours after she was murdered and yeah, yeah uh, it was, yeah, horrible. Just yeah. absolutely horrible. Yeah. I can, like the thoughts, like the overwhelming emotions, like the, the intensity of that, I, I imagine it's going to be ingrained so deeply 
in in you and it's been replayed over and over again i'd love to like now like delve into the mental health journey that you know that 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 kind of followed from that because i i know it's very very difficult to even be aware of the emotions you're going through and even sort of understand what was happening in that period do you remember any of like the thoughts even the immediate thoughts like when your parents first came and yeah i mean immediately it's shock which yeah. there's, there's tremendous sense of shock and uh it doesn't feel real you know like it, it frankly it feels surreal uh mm. and and then i'm not sure you know even now what the specific moment was that it hit me i remember after her funeral uh so you know if someone loses someone to homicide, you know, and I hope this never happens to anyone listening, but there's a whole process, right. That happens. He, you know, the body is taken from the crime scene to the coroner's court. Mm. Um, there's a coronial process that occurs in terms of like toxicology or all the stuff that you hear about, right. This yeah. like, it, it sounds like an episode of law and order SVU or something, right. Or NCIS. Cause it's literally like that, right. Like that's um, it's like something on Netflix or Stan, right. Like you, you yeah. it, that's, it's like that but real, you know? And so separating that sense of like fiction from reality and you, you almost feel like a spectator to it. Like you, they try to include you in the process, but really you're just like, you've got blinkers on and you're just trying to get through the day. And um, every day feels at once like seconds long and years long, right? Like you lose all sense of time and you're, everything is disrupted, you know, your eating patterns, mm. your um, thinking patterns, you struggle to do any kind of work. It's basically like you exist as like a shell of a human being. Right. Yeah. And all the while you're having to make these really like big decisions, right? Like you yeah. have to go to the coroner's court and identify the body and look at it and confirm that it is in fact your loved one and then sign a piece of paper to confirm that. And, mm. you know, you read all these like heavy legal documents, the police are there to interview you, the office of public prosecutions and the director of public prosecutions start the process, you know, and you're just like trying to get by. Yeah. Right. And so for me, like uh, at the time I wasn't admitted to practice as a lawyer, but I would finished my law degree and everything. Um, it was pretty like pretty stressful understanding the process and knowing how it worked and all of its shortcomings mm. while also having to go through it as a, as an affected family member, yeah. you know? And, and, and I, I remember like the, the coroner's experience and all of that. And then you, the, the, the sheer toll that that stuff takes on your mental health is not something that you process until later at the time you're just trying to exist. Right. And I remember there were instances where like we had some family friends that had come to, offer condolences like yeah. a week after Nikki's death. And uh, I think it was like the big bash league or some cricket was on. And I was just sitting mm. there watching it. My friend's like, Oh, can I get you something? What are you thinking about? Right. Was mm. Like, you know, you know, do you want to talk about it? Mm. I was like, do you mind like ordering a pizza and we'll just watch the cricket. Mm. And I think it didn't, it didn't compute to him that like he looks fine and I wasn't fine. Right. Mm. But you kind of, you're so uh, consumed by what's going on you don't even know where to begin to process it. Yeah. And I think for me, um, you know, Nikki passed six and a bit years ago, right? Yeah. And for me, advocacy started within like a month after she died, right? right? Or like Very six soon. days. Yeah. Um, and I think because part of the beginning of that was a way to process. It was like all of this energy that I didn't know what to do with, right? Yeah. So it was either taking it out on a boxing bag at a gym 
and then trying to do it like the mental energy trying to do something with it right yeah. trying to enact some kind of change and using the skills that i had um but like mentally it's it's something i like i wouldn't wish it on anyone just because it i i met and i have met since you know i've lost count of the number of people who have had someone affected by murder or very serious violence and mm you look at either the victims or their families and there's like a part of them or parts of them missing, right? Like part of them died when they lost a loved one. And I just think that given the hope and creativity and, and kind of sense of nurture that Nikki lived her life with, mm. I wouldn't want that for myself. I wouldn't want, you know, him to win that like he, he may have killed her, but he's definitely not going to dampen my sort of zest for life or my kind of, um, my desire for being here. Yeah. Uh, I, I love that. And um, what you've just said, because it really kind of, kind of gives insight into how difficult it is to process grief and everyone has different ways and it takes different amounts of time for different people. And it's an ongoing process. I can only imagine. I think so. Yeah. yeah. And it's the, it's at once like contextually dependent. Right. And, and yet not. And what I mean by that is that like, if someone dies prematurely through like external means like murder or an accident or something mm. like that, mm. there's often like there's someone to blame or there's, you know, there's like a thing that like, oh, they passed before their time. That's horrible. And then if someone mm. dies in their old age, like a grandparent, for instance, or a great grandparent, yeah. they're like 90, 100, they're still like, it's weird because you're still somber, but there's a different sense about it, right? So the context yeah. of who it is and when they go matters. But at the same time, it really doesn't because the grief experience is so unique and personal to different people. And I think that, you know, one of the things that for everyone listening, I think is so important is not judging or, or, or laying judgment on other people's feelings. You know, that like, in, you, how can I put it? That like, if you, if someone feels a certain way, invalidating how they feel doesn't make your own feelings stronger. You know, like if someone's feeling sad about mm. their grandma dying and I say, for instance, oh, but my sister was murdered. It's not as bad. Yeah. I don't feel any, technically, I don't really feel any better. You know, mm. I just, I'm just a dickhead, right? So I think for yeah. me, one of the things, and I think for a lot of people, is like learning that everyone's emotions and emotional responses are unique to them and their conditioning and their experiences. Um, but yeah. on the flip side of that coin, we can't use, you know, our own emotions as a as a way to, or our experiences as a as a veneer in which to cover and protect from our own behavior. You know, like if you go through a mm. difficult time in life, but then you then take that out on other people that's not appropriate and okay behavior. And that's probably a symptom that, Hey, there's stuff going on here that you need to either go to therapy for, you need to talk to someone about whether it's, you know, conventional mental health or meditation, whatever it may be, you need to get on top of what's going on for you. Yeah. hundred percent. I think when, when it comes to especially things like trauma, like you mentioned, it's about survival at first. And it's about just like, how do I just be in the moment and make all those decisions? And there was obviously so many things you would have had to do, um, especially with like the media, right? When they, they started like, you know, asking you questions and stuff, but I guess later down the track, it's about, you know, how do I deal with these emotions that are, that are inside me and how do I rationalize them and how do I come to get a greater sense of self-awareness? Cause that's probably the only way you can move forward. And that's something I've realized recently. It was actually like last week, I was talking to a friend about, you know, a certain life experience I'd had. And probably something I hadn't really talked about in the last few years, because my mind was more so on just survival and a few other things, like just making sure everything's okay. But now I'm starting to realize like it's important to, to share those things with a professional 
because that's when you can only understand what you've gone through and you process it. Um, mm. So for you, was there, was there like a period where you realized right now I need to start seeing someone professionally after uh, Nikki's death or was it straight after or a year later? When, when did you make that move? I started uh, kind of straight away, really. Like yeah. I, I started, um, yeah, very quickly. There was um, a, a psychologist that I would see and then I went to see a psychiatrist and uh, yeah, initially I was doing well. Like I, I was sort of at a, a phase where, um, yeah, I was getting the support that I needed. For me, it was something that, um, you know, my mental health was a combination of grief and, and things, but also just general, like my kind of psyche and Mm. where I fit into the world and, you know, taking it back to our earlier conversation, like who I was as a kid growing up and my experiences. And so like my mental health is at once like inexplicably related to trauma and life experience and the loss of my sister, but also a product of who I am independent of that. Right. Yeah. Um, and so like I, I was doing really well in terms of consistently making mental health something that I focused on. Right. Um, yeah. But, but then one of the things, right, is that like it's like uh, it's like anything, like a skill, right? You stop doing it, you know. It's like if you play sport, you stop going to training. All mm. of a sudden, on game day, you're not playing as well, right? Yeah, that's it was like that for me with my mental health that I stopped doing the things I needed to do, um, in order to look after myself. I wasn't on any medication or anything, but I had a pretty rigorous plan that I had to follow according to my psychologist and everything, and I stopped doing it, you know, because I felt good. Right. If everything's going well and then you start, then you stop doing it and all of a sudden you start um, lapsing, it's because you're not doing the things that help you feel good. Right. Mm. And so I, and I didn't notice I was so absorbed with work and consumed by life and relationships and all that kind of stuff. Right. So I didn't really uh, grasp what was going on internally. I kind of checked out for myself a little bit. Um, yeah. And then that crept up, you know, that crept up until the point where like um, I went through a suicide attempt and um, that was the kind of uh, the wake up call. Really, that was the right. moment at which, uh, you know, sitting in the hospital after all of that and uh, like cooked up to tubes and all this, where it was like, man, you've got to get on top of this. You got to f- figure this shit out. Um, and and yeah, like I changed a lot in my life after that. I changed the people that I surrounded myself with. I changed like, uh, you know, I had to go on medication. And, and initially, like I had psychiatrist appointments and psychologist appointments like a couple a week, you know, like I was basically like, um, admitted into hospital and all this stuff. And it was like, uh, it's strange to think about because it was only a couple, two and a half years ago, but like right. I was a different person. Yeah. You know, I, like I, I feel different now. Um, but that's testament to the fact that I do stuff to, you know, to look after it. And yeah. for some people, they need medication. I take medication. For others, they don't. Um, so it's all about, I think, trying to do our bit to break down the stigma of mental health so that it doesn't get to the point of such severe mental illness, right? Yeah. That that you go through what I did or what, you know, um, what others do. Like I think sometimes like what if that attempt was successful, right? What mm. if what if I actually knew what I was doing um, and, and succeeded on it? But I didn't, you know, and I touch wood, I, I feel very grateful that I had no fucking idea what I was doing because yeah. if I did, I would have succeeded and we wouldn't have this conversation and it would be like, countless particularly men Mm. just a a statistic right and i think that that's one of the things that we talk about you know particularly in our communities is uh where we're willing to approach certain conversations but there are others you know around mental health and other topics that we just pretend like it doesn't exist 
You know, like I still hear from friends who will tell me like they told their parents they're feeling depressed and their dad was like, well, then be happy. Um, yeah, I've heard that in my household a few you know? times. And it's, yeah. yeah, that's, yeah, it's hard to not like blame, get angry and like blame. It's just the way yeah. that uh, they've yeah. grown up. Um, yeah. Yeah. And sometimes I think that there's a perception as well, right? That it's generational. There's a perception I think that some of us hold on to that like, the older generation doesn't get it. And I don't think it's always as clear cut. I think there's like trends there, mm. but sometimes I'll meet people that are our age or our generation and they don't get it right. Their yeah. attitudes are sometimes worse than some of our parents' generation. Right. Like yeah, I've seen people's grandparents who just seem to get it. Like I remember hearing a story about um, someone having a conversation and they said like around their um, grandmother that they had anxiety yeah. And often that's met with like, oh, then you should stress less. Why are you so stressed? Or like you should eat fruit or some useless advice. It's like, yeah, yeah. that's not that's not a bad thing. Like eating fruit is not a terrible thing. It's not going to cure your anxiety. But, you know, objectively, it's not like bad advice. Yeah. But it's not. It's got no bearing on the actual um, situation and circumstances. But then I've heard stories about like people saying that around their grandmothers, right? Like I've got terrible anxiety and it's affecting my day-to-day functioning. Hmm. And their grandmother's saying like, you want to talk about it and it's just like you don't that's not common but when it happens it's like wow like she kind of gets it she wants to be there you know i don't know what she's going to follow up with it may Mm. not be helpful but at the same time it's like um i think we need to be conscious of of, uh, meeting people where they're at and then giving credit where they're trying their best you know i think that if we all do that like try our best to break down the stigma Mm. we'll do a lot better um and i think there's always the worry like what are other people going to say? Yeah. But I think other people are too busy worrying about themselves to really say anything of substance about another person, right? They're too busy yeah. worrying about themselves. Um, and anything they do say is often a reflection more on where they are than anything about you. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to like people that I do in my family, it's almost like you have to give them a chance sometimes, I feel like it's it's easy to assume, hey, they won't really get where I'm coming from in a different generation, but you can have experiences where people will understand. And you mentioned that, that like the example of like someone's grandma and anxiety. I've had a similar experience with one of my uncles talking about depression. Um, and we had a chat about, it was literally about like the podcast. And he asked like, he's, he's not in India, he's in America, but, you know, grew up in India. And we talked about the role that, you know, depression kind of has in our family on my dad's side. And we're talking about, you know, maybe there's a genetic element there because, you know, like I had like certain members, whether it be grandma, grandpa, who actually had instances, maybe not formally diagnosed with depression, but it was very evident. And I think like that was such a, that was such a memorable conversation for me because it made me realize, hey, this stuff is so complicated. But the fact that I can have this conversation is, is, is a moment of insight for me to realize, hey, maybe there's there's a certain level of vulnerability vulnerability here yep. for me to realize you know i may be more prone to depression and within it goes to when it comes to mental illness it's important i think to realize that you know genetics do play a role obviously yep. many other things play a role but you know that's why we have these conversations because when you can talk about these things in second nature you can really come to build a greater self-awareness um, and I think one really important thing, and you kind of touched on this earlier, is the idea of like mental health being a continuum. And, you know, often things can be fine and you're doing well, but that doesn't mean you stop 
seeing a psychologist or stop doing the things that make you feel good because yep. later on you're going to face some sort of challenges and you need to exactly. have the resilience. Um, and this is something I struggle with still like hundred percent. I can't say I'm, I can do this now. You know, I might have a good day where I'm feeling like an eight out of 10 and, you know, let's eat some junk food. Let's watch TV. But then, you know, in a few weeks or even a month, months from now, you're going to like, it's going to come back and bite you. I feel. So you need to yep. constantly be reflecting on, you know, how you're feeling, why you're feeling that and do the things that you need to do. Exactly. And I think that's the thing, right? That it, it's, it's a process and it's an iterative process and it takes time. You can't just uh, expect that you can neglect it and then, um, or ignore it rather, and then mm. expect that um, you're not going to have the consequences of like any other ailment that you neglect. Like if you break a bone, right, and you take your cast off before the six or eight weeks or whatever the doctor advises you, then you're not going to make a full recovery, right? Yeah. And even then you might need to go undergo like physiotherapy or other things after it in order to make sure that everything's fully healed and you have the right quality of life. And mental health is quite similar i would argue that to physical health it's just not understood that way you know it's sort of thought of like if you take a pill you'll get better but the thing for me is that like i take medication right and that helps but if i just took medication i didn't try to have some kind of regular physical physical activity if i didn't try and eat appropriately if i didn't try to look after myself if i didn't try to have you know meaningful you know social connections in my life i would inadvertently suffer right? I may not suffer as much as if I wasn't on medication, but it's part yeah. of the holistic thing, right? And I think that's where some people, particularly in South Asian cultures, can think uh, negatively about medicine, right? We'll think like, oh, why don't you take like a natural medicine? Why don't you try some like Ayurveda or yeah, you know, yeah. something homeopathy or, what, or something, right? And I don't want to get into like evidence-based arguments about it, uh, but more around like, if you if that stuff gives you some degree of like, uh, sustenance or comfort or psychological well-being sense of well-being that you're doing something to look after yourself mm. by all means do it right but don't yeah. discount or ignore the fact that we have in modern medicine or what's called modern medicine yeah. pharmacological agents that can actually work on your brain chemical compounds to support your well-being right mm. like you, it's not like it's like that thing that people say that like oh if you practice meditation and yoga you'll have the best mental health Maybe, but not everyone will, right? So yep. if you need something else, it's okay, right? It's not a weakness. It's not a, it's, and it's not a strength. It just is, you know? So rather than, like, for me, it's like, rather than, like, going, for example, that we need to be positive about everything, we don't actually need to be positive or negative. We can just be neutral about it, right? Mm. Like, just it just exists, you know? Like, yeah. mental health exists. Mental illness exists. We can do something to look after it or we can ignore it. If we ignore it, negative things will happen. If we do something well, the baseline is a neutral position, right? And from that, we can grow to, to do something positive. Yeah, 100%. And what, what you just said about, about medication reminds me of um, this book called The Happiness Hypothesis. And yep. it's a pretty scientific take on, you know, the psychology of well-being and, you know, what makes us happy. And he talks, like the author of the book talks about our temperament, which is sort of like our baseline state. And everyone has a different baseline state, I guess. Like you can either be like, you know, very joyful. Some people are more timid. Some people are more inclined to sometimes feel a bit more sad. And he talks about uh, a few different things that can help it be a more even playing field for everyone. For yeah. example, if you're more inclined to be depressed, what can you do? And he nails it down to CBT meditation and the other thing which I found really interesting and this was a bit you know controversial was SSRIs or 
you know, medication that is typically used for mental yeah. illnesses. And I think it's so important um, to consider that last, to consider all three really, because what may work for someone may not work for others. SSRIs don't work for everyone, but they can be amazing for some people. Yeah. And there, I mean, um, SSRI, selective um, serotonin, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the, they're yeah. one form, right? And I'm not a medical professional, so I'm not going to comment, but like yeah. that's one of many forms of medication, right? Yeah. There are many agents of, you know, pharmacological agents that uh, people can take and that, you, that they use. And so, look, it's, um, it, there, there's more than one type of, uh, of thing that works for people. And I think that, that it's really about, being open to having a conversation with a medical doctor that you trust. Uh, and, and actually, if you don't get the experience that you're anticipating or hoping for from a conversation with a medical professional, whether it's your um, consulting GP or, you know, someone else like a psychologist, psychiatrist or counselor, whatever it may be, there are others. You don't need to stay with the same one. You know, there's no loyalty to where like, Oh, I've spoken to someone for, a year so I have to stay with them. If right. they're no longer supporting you to have your best possible mental health, mm. then that relationship need not continue. You know, and you can actually have that with them because any self-respecting psychologist, for instance, if you say to them, you know, you've helped me with uh, getting on top of my social anxiety, but there are other aspects of uh, my mental health that I feel aren't being adequately addressed here. And then you list the, two or three concerns. Is this something you can help me with? Or do you know a colleague or, uh, you know, do you have a friend who works in the same field who can help me? Mm. And a good, a good um, psychologist is often quite receptive to that. You know, they're actually like, Hey, yeah, I do. You know, because not everyone knows everything, right? The, the yeah. mind is one of the most beautiful things that we have. And so um, there's so many branches to its study and its treatment that there's different professionals who can deal with different aspects of that. And I think that, um, we spend a lot of times beating ourselves up about how we're going to be judged rather than just putting the message out there and actually finding that it's met with, um, you know, met pretty well. Yep. Yep. No, that, that, that completely makes sense. And I can see how difficult it is. Like even in my like experience, personal experiences with seeing a professional, I've had some amazing experiences or more so one experience where I, completely resonated with that individual and it was it was very very helpful and i've had negative experiences not negative but like not on the same level of experiences where i haven't really resonated with someone and i think it's sort of accepting that if you want to see a professional that it may not work out the first time it may take a bit of experimentation and yeah as you said they would 100 percent or you'd hope in most cases be open to helping you find the right person or understanding what direction you need to at least go in and yeah, it's just, again, to me, just under, like just almost appreciating how complicated this stuff is and how different it is for everyone. It's not, yeah. it's not something that you can just plug into a formula, right? Yeah, exactly. There's not one, there's not a one size fits all thing to, to, to this. So you, if you have to think outside the box, you have to look at other avenues to get support, it's available and it exists. And in saying that, the caveat is that we live in a country, unfortunately, where mental health services aren't appropriately funded, where particularly the public healthcare system is mm. not to the standard that it needs to be. And there are disproportionate impacts that 
people of color and people from migrant backgrounds, um, mm. even if they've been here a long time, people such as us can experience. And then women particularly, and then those from like LGBTQI plus communities mm. can experience in, in dealing with these, these systems. But on the whole, you know, for, for the mainstream, the, the system does, you know, more often than not fortunately work. Um, but not by much. So there's a lot of policy change that needs to happen and things like that. But mm. in terms of the individual and, and taking some semblance of um, self-accountability or self-responsibility for one's mental health, that's possible. You know, like it's not easy, um, but it's yeah. possible. And I think as, as difficult as it is, it's worth it. I think is my message that it's, it's not easy. Um, it's really hard, but it's definitely worth it. It's worth trying. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, I mean, I guess like we're obviously in 2021 now and the story you went through in 2019, it's been about what, two years since then and probably about, is it two years since you've openly been sharing your personal mental health journey? Is that right? Yeah, I touched on it a little bit before, but coming up, I think uh, a little over two years that I've been yeah. very open about it. Yeah. You know, like I've been, I've been, you know, like in terms of speaking about medication, in terms of everything that, yeah. you know, and Look, I've, I mean, I haven't found significant career drawbacks or anything. There have been some, you know, there's, but, but I think that the more people that talk about things openly, the more things shift in the right direction. Yeah. You know, like, could you imagine a world where people would be uh, treated differently if they broke a bone in their body? Like that would just, it would not, fly it would not be okay like there, yeah. there would be clear workplace discrimination laws against you know treating someone differently or making their life more difficult in a professional capacity because they broke a bone in their body right yeah but people still get stigmatized in workplaces for mental health issues right yeah. that's the culture that we're trying to shift like that's what we're trying to change. They're like, yep. if it happened to you physically, right? Like if you broke a bone or you hurt yourself, no one would hold that against you because they couldn't. We want the same thing in terms of um, mental health. That 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 it can't be held against you. It's just part of your makeup, and that's who you are. And instead, the focus is on all of the good that you bring to the workplace, and then trying to adapt and work within the accessibility requirements that you need in order to actually give back and contribute what you do so well um, yep. while supporting you you know like flipping the narrative a little bit so it's less of a liability and more just uh you know something that is it doesn't need to be seen as an asset like it doesn't need to be the negative doesn't need to be flipped to a positive it's just neutral it just is and we deal with it yeah it's, it's literally an inevitable part of life it's something that you know everyone goes through it's yep. part of a continuum and yeah the the, the i think we're definitely in the right direction and because of really like amazing, insightful and, you know, the courageous stories that you've shared and a lot of people are sharing now that is inspiring. I think the South Asian community to, you know, let's start talking more about this. Let's have these conversations and let's dig deeper into the, the causes of, of why there is the stigma, particularly in, in South Asian communities in the first place. Um, yep. I wanted to end like this discussion, you know, kind of on, your key messages as an advocate. Um, and I know that you're obviously advocating more than just one area and like maybe just tying it together because there's obviously mental health, which is an important part of the message you share, but also the toxic masculinity and, you know, respect for women. It's like, do you think, you know, as an advocate, it, it ties in very closely, like in you know, the idea of toxic masculinity that contributes to mental health stigma. Um, 
is that what's the what will be the essence of you know the message that you want to share with our audience and i say when i say our audience i think a lot of people are around the same age as me so we're like you know in those formative years around 23 24 25 and we're we're you know grappling over you know the most difficult questions in our life like what are we going to do in the next 5 10 years what's our purpose how do we live in this challenging world so it's a difficult time but yeah as an advocate what would you want to share yeah, what a, I mean, what a phenomenal question. It's quite broad as well. Yeah, it's very I, like broad. I, yeah, I mean, I don't want to be prescriptive in terms of like do Definitely. this, don't do that, but but I think that uh and and especially because like once we move out of the pandemic and what life looks like, you know, we talk about going back to normal. I'm of the view that uh whatever we defined as normal before March 2020, that's gone. Like, unfortunately, that is a, a figment now of our of our past imagination, right? That like normal in even if we're talking about travel you know we're like oh when, mm-hmm. once for those in melbourne and australia uh, australia uh, that once international borders are open and we're traveling and everything that it'll get back to normal i don't think it'll get back to normal right because i think yeah. that travel will look different dealing with airlines will look different all of the logistics of it will look different the human emotions mm-hmm. of actually getting to see loved ones or have experiences in the world that'll be um if anything it might be enhanced right because it'd yeah. be like wow like i haven't been able to do this for so long you go see one of the wonders of the world it'd be like wow this is remarkable i get to look at this in person incredible yeah. right but in terms of like what um what my message is to to people listening i think that you know it's about finding your sense of purpose in the world like what really matters to you like if you yeah. like really being quite frank with yourself i think one of the things for me when uh, when i went through that um suicide attempt and coming on the other side of that is really reevaluating like what matters to me in terms of my life goals in terms of my life priorities and and realizing that a life is actually um at once simultaneously very long and not long enough right and it like too short so it's like mm. i have a finite amount of time what am i going to spend it doing right and then try to do and, and fit in as much as you healthily can that that gives you a sense of purpose and well-being right um without compromising your mental health or your your well-being in any way you know like if you have relationships with people that you feel that you've outgrown them right like you might have high school friends that you're still in touch with but they're not adding anything to your life but you've sort of not um you've sort of just kept them around you don't necessarily need to do that right like if you're say 25 now and and you've got friends from 15 but you've outgrown each other and and the only thing keeping you together is time i think particularly culturally we sometimes hold on to that like we've got a keep them in our life not necessarily it doesn't need to be there's no animosity it's not like it's not a negative thing it's not like you think less of them or that you think you're better or they're not you know Mm. there's no there's no superiority or inferiority about it but it's really about like what you know what do i need around me in order to in order to do the best job i can of life you know and and in that like finding ways to to instill creativity in your life in any way right like even if you're even if you're uh like a young parent right and you've got barely any time to do things right Mm. because you're trying to raise a family and provide and and also be a partner that that shows up is find ways to create joy in whatever capacity right And, and to me like you can do that then that's a life well lived i think sometimes we get so bogged down in like the the shit that doesn't matter that ultimately like we don't end up living the the fullest sense of life that we can i think one of the things like during the pandemic i remember reading about the the things that nurses told um 
the things that nurses were told when people were on their deathbed and no one was like, mm. oh, I wish I worked harder on that project at work. But they're like, I wish I spent some time with my family or I wish I did this, you know, travel or that. It's like really live life, you know, do stuff that gives you some kind of satisfaction, you know, because if you do that, then you've lived a good life, I think. Yeah, no, I love that answer. And like thinking back to our discussion over the last hour, I think it relates so closely to what Nikki represented the values that she embraced and how she pursued her passion. So I see the, the direct link there. And I love what you said about the small things um, and, and what small things bring you joy. That's something I've been thinking about recently. Like a friend asked me, Hey, what are the small things that bring you joy? And not like, mm. not the very obvious answers, but like something that's very unique to you. And I was like, yeah. I had to think real hard about it. But then I mm. came up with, Oh, like, I love seeing my friends on a Saturday morning and going to a bakery, for example. Yeah. It's beautiful. Gives me, gives me yeah. joy and it's like yeah. i can't rationalize it and say why but i just love yeah. it yeah yeah see that's fantastic isn't it that like you if you do that um if, if you can do whatever it is that brings you joy then you, you're living a good life so i think that's um it's not groundbreaking or anything but i think it's important that we all try to do that yeah 100 percent um in times like now as well it's so so important um yeah, Taran, thanks so much for everything you've shared and, you know, going into some very, very touching topics, very difficult things to, to talk about. Um, I think it will go very far with our audience. I've loved this chat. And yeah. No, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this chat and I hope that everyone that listens gets something out of it as well. And there you have it. That was Taran Traveller. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. If you did make it this far, thank you so much for your support. And yeah, it was a very intense conversation, but I gained a lot from it and i think the way tarang shares his message it's very inspiring and it's very eloquent so yeah definitely a podcast that i'll remember for a long time and yeah it will stick um but yeah that's all i have to say there's nothing too much to add after that conversation um hope everyone's well and yeah getting through to the end of lockdown happy days